The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. Following the news today, my special guest is the Honorable Congresswoman Barbara Lee, so stay tuned. Here are some news headlines. Governor Andrew Cuomo is running out of time and friends as he stares down the prospect of being the first New York governor impeached in more than 100 years, with his own party leading the way. Days after State Attorney General Letitia James, also a Democrat, released a detailed report that found he had sexually harassed 11 women violating state and federal law, the three-term governor, one of the most powerful figures the state has seen in a generation, is bleeding support at home and among the Democratic Party's national heavyweights. The state legislature is poised to move ahead with the impeachment proceedings and those seeking to remove him from office appear to have the votes to do it. ABC News reports. She was standing holding the door open for the governor. As he passed, he took his open hand and ran it across her stomach from her belly button to where she, the hip where she keeps her gun. Half of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated against COVID-19, according to a White House official. The Delta variant accounts for an estimated 93.4% of COVID-19 cases in the U.S., according to CDC numbers. So far, there has been 36,449,533 coronavirus cases in the U.S. 632,647 have died from the disease. In California, 4,032,023 cases have been reported and 64,733 people have died from COVID-19. More than one year into the COVID-19 pandemic, the world is grappling with a highly transmittable Delta variant that has caused a renewed surge in infections in countries from the UK and US to those in Africa and Asia. Delta is the most transmittable variant of the coronavirus. While vaccinations reduce the overall risk of catching the Delta variant, research published Friday by Public Health England found early evidence that people fully vaccinated against COVID-19 may be able to transmit the hyperinfectious variant just as easily as those who aren't. California has now reported 4 million coronavirus infections, Times data show, a milestone that underscores the extent to which the pandemic has roared back to life as the ultra-transmittable Delta variant continues to storm across the state. California announced another round of coronavirus vaccine incentives on Friday, offering up to $50 apiece to more than 11 million people in the state who get their health insurance through Medicaid. The money is part of a new $350 million plan to get more of the state's Medicaid population vaccinated. Much of the town of Greenville is reduced to ashes by the Dixie Fire. Cal Fire said the three-week-old fire grew to 322,502 acres overnight, driven by fierce winds and leveled parts of Greenville, 
a gold rush area community of about 1,000. Reports indicate that Greenville is 75% destroyed, federal fire officials said in an incident briefing. CBS News' Jonathan Vigliotti reports on the Dixie Fire and its devastation. Most difficult part, I guess, is just not knowing what, what's happening and where it's at. It's just, you know, it just explodes so fast, you just don't have time to react with anything. Shaking like a leaf, but uh, it's okay. I've got my family together, and that's what's important. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about uh, this sort of insane and absurd uh, resistance that some Republicans have, especially Republican uh, lawmakers, to wearing a mask, uh, including the governor of Florida. What's really ironic is some of them are saying that it's government overreach. Now, if we just go back, well, not too far back, but just to the uh, Bush administration, and we'll look at some of the some of the laws that were passed uh, that were just huge government overreach. These Republicans, most of them did not have any problem with. In fact, they supported them overwhelmingly, including uh, Citizens United, which was a Supreme Court ruling that reversed the century-old campaign finance restrictions and enabled corporations and Uh, other outside groups to spend unlimited funds on elections. So they were okay with that, but they're not okay with a mask. Uh, Or the Patriot Act, which which was a very hastily passed uh, 45 days after 9-11 in the name of national security. But the Patriot Act was uh, first of many changes to surveillance laws that made it easier for the government to spy on ordinary Americans by expanding the authority to monitor uh, phone and email communications, collect bank and credit card reporting records, and track the activity of innocent Americans uh, online. Uh, While most Americans think that it was created to catch terrorists, the Patriot Act actually turns regular citizens into suspects. Now, most of the Republicans were totally okay with this uh, government overreach, and yet they're opposing uh, a mask, something that helps Americans, their constituents, whether they're a governor, a mayor, senator, or or a, a representative. So I don't understand it. We're not going to be able to reduce... And I don't want to say eradicate because I don't think any one of us knows uh, when that will happen uh, for COVID-19. But to get it under control so we're not seeing this uh, resurgence again, uh, we, have to, we have to go with the advice of uh, medical experts and scientists. And if that means wearing a mask, then we must wear a mask. So let's get blunt. Let's be direct with people and just wear a mask until uh, we don't have to. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. In 1998, Congresswoman Barbara Lee was elected to serve California's ninth congressional district, now the 13th, in a special election. In 2001, Congresswoman Lee received national attention as the only member of Congress to oppose the authorization for the use of military force in the wake of the horrific events on September 11th. 
Congresswoman Lee has been a fierce advocate for ending HIV and ensuring an AIDS-free generation. Congresswoman Lee is the only African-American woman in Democratic leadership serving as co-chair of the Policy and Steering Committee. As co-chair, Rep. Lee works to ensure that committees reflect the diversity, dynamism, and integrity of the Democratic caucus. Uh, Congresswoman Lee, uh, thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you doing? Yeah, doing great. Nice to be with you. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time. Much appreciated. Lots is happening in this sort of transitional period, hopefully. I, I haven't yet said sort of like the ending of COVID, but transitional, maybe even escalating, unfortunately, this period. And uh, I know that you're super busy. So before I sort of ask you any specific questions, uh, what's your perception? How do you feel about where we are today? I think where we are today is a turning point, a defining moment. We could either go backwards and uh, regress in terms of our attempt to crush this virus or move forward. And it's so important that we encourage people to uh, get vaccinated. And I think it's important also to recognize that uh, we've got to continue with um, our health protocols, which have been stated by CDC and by our state, by local communities, because this Delta variant, uh, we see what's happening. And it's um, a variant that is novel. The, the science is evolving every day. And we need to make sure that um, we keep ourselves, our families, and our communities safe by following the guidelines and getting vaccinated and doing everything that's required. We'll get through this, but everyone has to do their part. Otherwise, uh, it's going to take much longer. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll sort of have another major crisis like we did last year. Uh, thank you for that. I want to go back, uh, um, Congresswoman, to well, what you did um, almost 20 years ago, it's the 20th anniversary is coming up uh, when your legislation, it, uh, it repealed the 20, uh, 2002 uh, authorization for use of military force against Iraq, which seems such a long time ago. Um, that was a huge victory for you and the 20th anniversary is coming up. For those of us who don't know, you know too much about it, uh, would you elaborate? Sure, thanks, Vic. And there were two authorizations. One was 2001, which uh, was passed by Congress uh, in three days. It was a blank check that gave any president the authority to go to war forever. That was the one that I voted uh, against, uh, and no one else voted with me. Everyone voted no. I mean, everyone voted yes, excuse me, I voted right. no, because it did give over authority to any president to uh, wage war, and that's unconstitutional. Every um, time a president needs to uh, use force, he or she needs to come to Congress. But that authorization was the 2001. The 2002 authorization is an authorization that was passed in Congress that would authorize the use of force against Iraq. And for those of, who don't remember or who weren't even born during that period, uh, there was this whole effort by Secretary of State Colin Powell, um, President Bush, to mislead the public. Actually, they lied. They said there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and we knew there were none. Um, and 
we tried to stop them because the inspectors were there and investigating and inspecting Iraq to determine whether there were or not. And so I offered an amendment to the, that authorization that said, just let the inspection process play out. Let the inspectors complete their, their work and then we'll determine what to do next. Well, of course, I only got 72 votes for that amendment, but had it passed and had it uh, become law, we would have learned that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was the purpose of that authorization, period. And it was based on a lie. And so I've been trying to repeal both of them <laughs> since then. And I've been able to repeal the 2001 and 2002 and appropriations bills and then authorization bills and this, but we never could get them through the Senate and to the White House. So this year, once again, my bill to repeal the 2002 authorization, which was the Iraq resolution authorization, passed through the Foreign Affairs Committee. It passed through the off the floor with, I believe, 260 some votes. Uh, so it was a good bipartisan vote. Now it's in the Senate. And uh, of course, well, when it was in the House, the president and the Biden administration issued uh, what they call a SAP, Statement of Administration's Policy, supporting, repealing it. So they supported my bill, which they don't support a lot that comes to the floor, but I was right. very pleased that they did. So we got it into the Senate. I've talked with Senator Kane. So Senator Kane now uh, is working on a Senate version, which uh, got off of the Senate floor. And I spoke with him this week, and so um, we're cautiously optimistic that we'll be able to bring it to the Senate floor, maybe, who knows, in September, maybe. But um, also, it's bipartisan, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to build enough votes in the Senate to get it to uh, the president's desk. And if we do, uh, he indicated he would sign it. And so this would be a major, major victory for those who have understood for 20 years now that the Iraq war was based on lies. There were no weapons of mass destruction. And we sent our young men and women into harm's way. They did everything they could do. We inserted ourselves into uh, you know, a war in Iraq, where, a civil war where we should have never been. Countless refugees, countless um, Iraqis dead as a result, destroyed their country. And why did we do that? I'm glad that you went there because uh, I do remember all of this. I remember the case that was made, and I remember the UN inspectors repeatedly saying they haven't found any evidence. <clears throat> of course, later we learned that soon after uh, President Bush took office, he instructed his cabinet to find some sort of a reason, some sort of a something that ties uh, Saddam Hussein to uh, some sort of a crime to give him reason to go in there. It's very sad. History repeats itself from Bay of Pigs to uh, you know Cuban Missile Crisis and Iran-Contra. It just keeps happening. And uh, thank goodness for uh, elected officials like yourself who is willing to stand alone uh, and vote, uh, or, or I should say vote no, for something that... Uh, something that's just giving way too much power to one single person. I remember in that time, post 9-11, uh, it was this sort of weird uh, fear-mongering period when we as Americans, if we said no to anything having to do with the Bush administration, uh, by God, we were not patriotic. 
and uh, you know you were we were either with them <laughs> or not with them or against them um, so congrats on that I hope uh, with now having a, a very narrow Senate majority um, that that will pass and get to President Biden if you are uh, just joining us uh, this is the blunt post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM I am your host, Vic Charami, and you are listening to my interview with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. And next, um, you know, we talked a little bit about COVID, and of course, so many Americans lost their jobs in last year and this year, and there's been some movement, there's been some improvements this year, at least so far. Um, I don't, I read numbers and figures coming out from the White House, as well as just publications, and I wonder how many of those sort of new jobs that are created were really jobs that were sort of, uh, you know, people just lost them and then now they're going back or um, things like that. How do you, I know that your job creation is is on top of your priority and you're working hard on that. Uh, How do you see the situation right now? Sure, and I think uh, what's important is to recognize how we've worked with the Biden-Harris administration to make sure that um, people's economic security wasn't totally destroyed during this deadly pandemic. And so we passed several bills that would fill in the gap and help people through this terrible period, through the American Rescue Plan, through the CARES package and other packages to help with the extension of unemployment benefits, Uh, to help with, again, eviction, um, an eviction moratorium, which we'll talk about in a minute, and also to make sure that um, when the caregivers and people in sectors that uh, essential services, uh, who are providing those essential services so that communities could survive through this period, that they're protected, uh, and that small businesses receive the type of, uh, not necessarily loans, but grants to pay their employees such as we provided resources for restaurants, but also for small businesses, minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, to make sure that they uh, are able to at least make payroll and to survive during this period. Having said that, many have gone on a business. I know it was estimated a couple months ago that about 40% of African-American businesses just went totally under because the first tranche of the resources, there were so many barriers there that uh, the big corporations <laughs> got access to the money that we had provided right. for relief for, for businesses. So we had to go back and make sure that we set aside, I think it was $60 billion for specifically on the type of businesses, the mom and pop businesses, those that keep this country going, but don't have necessarily huge bank accounts or access to SBA loans or, you know, the traditional banking systems and financial systems that that the big businesses have. So it's been really hard uh, for people of color and and people who are running small businesses to stay afloat. So, uh, and, and of course, jobs have been lost. Uh, we, some people can't afford, even if there were jobs available, I mean, the cost of childcare, especially for women who have, uh, all the reports are showing that uh, they have not returned to the workplace because of taking care of their families and their children. And so chi- we're trying to make child care a priority in the American Families Plan because uh, women uh, and men need need good quality child care for their kids so they can go back to work. And finally, let me just say we need uh, the minimum wage 
um, raised, uh, uh, you know, to a living wage. And what is what we've learned and seen during this whole period is that um, people were paid such low wages until they they couldn't even meet their obligations. They'd have to work two or three different jobs. And so with the Biden administration, they, we talk about building back better, but progressives say, yeah, we've got to build back better and bolder so that we don't get back to where people have to work two and three jobs just to survive Indeed. to take care of their families. That's just unacceptable in, in this uh, wealthy and powerful country. Much wealthier than some of the nations that have those um, those social programs in place and have the... Yeah, and, and Vic, and let me just say sure. here, I believe in a universal um, income, a guaranteed annual universal income, because we have to have a floor that people can't fall beneath. And so in my city, I know uh, Mayor Tubbs in Stockton, my city of Oakland, and other cities are using, uh, trying to develop demonstration projects to show that if you help people during really hard times, that they can survive those times and move forward and get a good paying job and take care of their family. So we have to look and think out of the box on how, what economic security, what, what vehicles, financial vehicles and economic uh, strategies are in place to help people beyond just uh, helping to extend unemployment. A Band-Aid, absolutely. I think that's what, one of the reasons I really like your work because you're not afraid to say it or do it. And, uh, you know, with diplomacy as it is, a lot of people are sort of people-pleasing uh, or trying to sort of make everyone happy all of the time. It never works. Um, what I was going to say earlier is, you know, why, if we look at nations like Denmark and Norway and Belgium and Sweden that have the highest standards of living and the happiest people based on surveys, you know, why can't we look to them and follow some of their model? It's just such an uphill battle. Well, Beck, let me, let me just say this. Those countries don't have large numbers of African-Americans and people of color, okay? Uh, we have issues in America of systemic racism, right. and especially historical racism of course. for African-Americans dating back 401 years ago to the Middle Passage. So yeah, we could do it if, if there was the will, but we have to dismantle these structures that are barriers to people of color. Those countries uh, don't have populations that... Uh, you know, they may have small populations of Africans or people of color from all around the world, but they don't have systems of injustice that have been built in since the beginning of the founding of their countries. Absolutely, 100%. It's an institutionalized uh, racism. And a lot of times, I think, um, from what I've learned from some of my black friends is don't just say racism because it's too blanket, but anti-black racism, which is a whole different experience for uh black Americans in this nation. Um, I think uh, black Americans and, and Native Americans have had a very unique, traumatizing experience, uh, although other minorities too have had their fair share. In fact, um, one of my last questions was going to be, and we can get into it now, is, you know, we, we have short memories and we sort of get all wound up about something and then it's passe. If you are uh, just joining us, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Um, I was going to ask you in this sort of post-George Floyd era, when we're still seeing, you know, Texas 
a police officer, you know, almost suffocating a young black girl. Are we going into the right direction or is it just too slow? How do you think this is all happening? Well, it's much too slow. And uh, we're not painting every police officer with the same brush, but we know that many police departments are, are inherently racist. And we also know the history of policing. And so we've seen it's brutal murder and <laughs> that the world saw really woke people up, right? Yeah. Those who didn't believe or didn't know what systemic racism is, now they do. So what do we do about it? Minimally, we should pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I mean, minimally. Right. Uh, I mean, come on. We need these modest reforms that ban chokeholds, that ban no-knock warrants, that set up a national registry. I mean, now police officers can go from one jurisdiction to another, even if they've murdered someone. I mean, and so we've got to have some national standards for policing. And we've got to have more um, funding and more resources for the front end to help make sure our, our black and brown communities are truly safe uh, and know what mass incarceration has done. Not to mention how many black and brown people have been killed at the hands of police. I mean, I was a community worker with the Black Panther Party. <laughs> that was right. in the day. And we, we were trying then to stop police brutality and police um, misconduct and murders. And so we have to have total police reform and one step forward is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and I just have to say uh, you know Congresswoman uh, Karen Bass and Senator Booker have been working very hard to try to get the Republican Senator Tim Scott to understand that uh, it's in everybody's interest and in the country's interest to have a, a good legislative strategy or and laws on the books so police departments can be guided to really um, police in a way that uh, is just and fair to everyone. Yeah, and that's a good example of what you said earlier. You said we need to sort of take down some of the structures that have built these institutional, institutionalized, um, and not just racism, but systems that are just not working. And one of them being our prison industrial complex of privatizing them and giving them incentives, which is driving this um, this whole police state. And uh, I don't know if you've been following LA District Attorney George Gascon's career since he was elected last year, who has really um, done a great job of of doing it, you know, doing the things that he promised he was going to do during this campaign. But of course, now we're seeing a backlash of people, or some people at least wanting him recalled because he's been tough on police brutality and uh, has been trying to do, you know, criminal justice reform. And uh, we, we see some examples of that where it's mostly Republicans trying to recall Democrats. But uh, well, yeah, that's who they are. And whenever you step out to try to ensure that there's justice and, and reform some of these systems of injustice, Republicans, because they, they benefit from the, the types of systems that are in place. That's that's who they are. That right. keeps them in power. And that keeps white supremacy intact in this country. And, and we've got to shatter those, you know, barriers that have been built on white supremacy and racism. And Republicans don't believe that. They don't even understand it and they could care less. 
Yeah, I think that last uh, that last phrase sums it up. They could care less. Thankfully, we have uh, President Biden in office and uh, um, Senator Kamala Harris or Vice President Kamala Harris now uh, to give us some hope. Um, with that, I want to transition to uh, the work you've done um, for. Uh, you know, as you know, um, California has about 900,000 Armenian Americans and. and your district has um, quite a lot, and you've done a, a lot of work for the Armenian American community. You're part of the Armenian Congressional Caucus. You know, tell us what's been what's been happening lately, because uh, I mean, I know, but I want our listeners to hear it from you. Sure. Well, for for many years, I mean, I was out front. I remember in the Foreign Affairs Committee years ago, Appropriations Committee. I actually chaired the subcommittee on foreign operations, which funds all of our non-defense related. Um, but I was one of the first to fight to declare um, the genocide, that um, what happened in Armenia was a genocide. Right. And uh, I've had a vis- uh, the privilege to visit uh, Armenia in 2019 with the House Democratic Partnership. Of course, we're tr- uh, engaging in um, with the Armenian parliament to help strengthen its democracy. And and so I've been very involved in Armenian issues for many, many years, and I've been just horrified by uh, recent uh, violent assaults that the Azerbaijani forces have perpetrated in 2020. And there's got to be a negotiated solution between both countries. And the U.S. Uh, must stand firm, firmly against such aggression and support efforts to bolster these negotiations. But in the bill, just to bring you up to date, in my bill that passed off the floor a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. we put in $50 million for assistance for Armenia. We put in $6 million for reconciliation in the Caucasus. We put in $2 million um, for the demining effort in Nagorno-Karabakh. Mm-hmm. We did the, an amendment that would... Um, actually prohibit Azerbaijan from receiving um, military education and training funding. That's the IMED account. And we um, expressed concerns over, this is in my bill, over the administration's waiver, which limits military aid to um, Azerbaijan and directed the president to take the imbalance in assistance to Armenia and Azerbaijan into account. So we did as much as we could do to get the votes to get this bill off of the floor. Uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to move forward to make sure that finally uh, there's some type of, a, you know, peace agreement. And, and the, Armen- the refugees, we put in humanitarian assistance in the past for the refugees from this latest war. And uh, we're going to keep working to make sure that justice is finally served. Thank you, Congresswoman. Thank you for your support. Um, I'm just going to ask you one more question because I I know how busy you are, and that is Uh about um, National Youth HIV AIDS Awareness Day. Excuse me. Uh, It was a bill that you um, sponsored in 2017 to just basically um, have the youth not have the stigma of HIV and and, and AIDS and get tested and all of that. Um, That was a big, big deal. Um, will you elaborate a little bit about that? Sure. You know, young people, uh, I do a lot with young people um, on a variety of fronts. And one, uh, I've been working in this space for many years on HIV and AIDS. And I found uh, quite a few young people, you know, understand the state and they really haven't had 
comprehensive health education uh, I'm in the schools or reproductive health education or really anything. And so what I'm trying to do is make sure young people know, first of all, they have people on their side, members of Congress, who support their efforts. We don't want them to uh, be discouraged or not understand why why uh, ending HIV and AIDS is, is paramount to my agenda, because we don't want our young people uh, to get sick or to get infected. And so it's important that young people know that uh, we're working to make sure we educate them so they can ed- educate others about why um, we've got to end HIV and AIDS by, as the UN has indicated, we can do it by 2030. Absolutely. It's very important. Um, thank you for your work on that. If you are uh, just joining us, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Charami, and you are listening to my interview with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Congresswoman, uh, is there a question that I should have asked that I missed, or would you like to make a point uh, or add something? Well, no, let me just add this. Uh, When you talk about resource allocation and and spending, we have to look at the military budget. And so I'm co-chair of the Defense uh, Spending Reduction Caucus. We're we're trying to address defense spending uh, by hopefully uh, getting a 10% cut in in the Pentagon budget passed. We we got nearly 100 votes last year. So this is a politically hard vote for members, but when you look at a defense budget of over $740 billion now, at least 150, 200 has been has been identified in waste, fraud, and abuse. And so we've got to get this defense spending under control where we have the resources to ensure support for our troops. Uh, they need more support, which which we are fighting for. They Many are on Section 8 and food stamps, and we want to support our troops as much as we can in a much better way but we also and so those resources should be used for them and we want to make sure that um, we have a national security that's strong that can meet any of the global threats that we have but not necessarily fuel the military industrial complex by spending money that uh, is misspent the Pentagon has never been audited it should have been audited years ago so I'm fighting yeah. Uh, with a Republican colleague to try to get the, the Pentagon to audit their resources. What family, what agency, what what does this say about we have to do audits our own selves. The IRS does audits on individuals, businesses, agencies all have to comply with, uh, with audits, but the Pentagon doesn't. Right. So it's out of control. It's out of control spending, and uh, we've got to get this under control. So I'm asking... When our amendment comes to the floor, Congressman Mark Pocan and I, that we get support for a 10% reduction in um, the defense budget because it's absolutely necessary. They contract out too much. They can do it in-house, hire more people, good-paying jobs. We can cut that budget by 10%. Right, which is not a whole lot, you know. No, that's about 70. It's not, but it's $74, $75 billion. But look at where we could reinvest Absolutely. At 75 billion, where we could enhance the quality of life for so many and lift people out of poverty, which I work on quite a bit, make sure children uh, are, you know, fed and have good quality education, decent, safe place to live, and that their parents have a, have a pathway into the American dream, where now so many don't. Absolutely. 
Well, uh, Congresswoman Lee, thank you for all that you do. Uh, thank you for being on the show. I uh, much appreciate it. And uh, good luck to you. Uh, I know that I'll be following uh, developments coming from your office. Thank you, Vic. Really nice being with you. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. That was the beloved Congresswoman Barbara Lee from the Oakland uh, Bay Area. Her directness, her willingness and courage to speak the truth uh, is so refreshing. Um, I really enjoy having her. This was her second time on The Blunt Post with Vic. Uh, Congresswoman Lee, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Blunt Post with Vic.